Um, we're going to be in Psalm 98 today, so if you brought your Bible today, go ahead and turn over to Psalm 98 um, while I get situated up here. Psalm 98 is uh, where we're going to be. So if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. So go ahead and grab that. Turn over the book of Psalms. If you, and if you don't have a Bible, please take that one home with you. Um, everybody needs a Bible. And if you've never read the Bible before, take that one and open it up to the book of John. That's where you should start, book of John. So Psalm 98 is where we're going to be. Um, let me catch you up to speed with what we've been doing in the book of Psalms this summer. Um, first off, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I actually just moved to Seattle, actually. And it's really hot in Seattle in the summer, it turns out. Um, and no one has air conditioning, right? Like, and every time I bring that up to someone, they're like, well, we only need a few days of the summer, but I'm pretty sure that I would have used the air conditioning every day in my apartment since I've moved here. So we should really just get on changing that, all right? Um, but here at Sedaris this summer and this hot summer, I guess it's uncharacteristically, uncharacteristically hot, is that right? Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's uncharacteristically hot summer. We've been studying the Psalms. Um, and each week we've ex been examining a new psalm, and we've been asking two questions of that psalm. Um, first, what does this psalm tell us about life? Um, and second, what does this psalm tell us about prayer? Because the, the, the book of Psalms is actually, it's a collection of prayers. Each psalm is its own individual prayer. And we're, we ask, well, so what is this going to teach us about what it means to pray? But then we're also coupling that with, what does this psalm tell us about life? Because prayers often spring out of life, don't they? That, that our prayers are actually really informed by the circumstances that we find ourselves in, and we actually come to God with these circumstances. And what we're finding is that these prayers are actually rooted in their own circumstances, aren't they? Each different psalmist is, has a different circumstance that they're going through, and they're bringing uh, a prayer to God to talk to God about it in these prayers. And what we're seeing over the course of the summer, it's been kind of playing out like this, is we have uh, these, these psalmists, we'll call them. Some of them are King David. Some of them, we don't know who they are. Our psalm tonight, we don't know who uh, he or she may be. But they go to psalm, they go, or they, they, they pray to God, they go to God, they go to God um, angry, they go to God depressed, they go to God upset, and in prayer, they actually end up coming out um, confident, joyful, they, they, they come out a changed person, and it's not like that time of prayer with God invalidated their previous emotions, it actually gave them a, a place to voice those emotions in, in a place that in a very, very healthy way. But what we're finding is prayer, something changes us in prayer where we go out and we live life in a different way too. All right, so that's what we've been doing this summer in the book of Psalms. We've been looking at each one and we've been seeing what are these beautiful things that come out of the prayers? What are these beautiful things that come out of each individual psalm that we can bring back into our life? And the one today is celebration. Celebration. Today we're going to see a, a, a beautiful celebration in the Psalms and one that gets brought out into the world. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I, uh, after church on Sunday night, I went to Bongo's. I think many of you were there, uh, wishing Nolan a goodbye party. Um, but after Bongo's, I went home. And uh, after I went home, I, I went to bed. And in the middle of the night, I set an alarm to wake me up so I could get up. I woke up Christy, actually the alarm woke her up. I, we got our two little girls out of bed and we all loaded up in the car in the middle of the night to go down and see the eclipse in Oregon. Who, who else did this? Did anybody else do this? 
All right, so you all may think I'm crazy. You all may think I'm crazy. That's okay. That's okay. But I, you have to understand I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to stuff like this. Um, my degree was in astrophysics, my, my undergrad at the University of Colorado. And so I've like seen the eclipse, like tons of pictures of the eclipse. And I've, I've always heard that it's something that you just had to experience. And so if it was something I could experience by just a car ride, I was going to do it. Okay? And so we, we all went down there. Uh, we left at like 1 in the morning. We drove down to Oregon. And uh, eventually we, we realized that we, were in the, that we were in the path of totality. That's what it's called, where the moon completely covers the sun. And so uh, our highway had another highway, and there was a huge dirt lot there, empty dirt lot. Uh, so we pulled off and we got in the lot. And over the course of the morning, more and more cars pulled up. I guess we could have slept a, a little bit longer, um, but I wasn't going to miss it. I wasn't going to miss it. Uh, so more and more cars pulled up as the morning went on until about 100 cars filled this lot. About 100 cars filled this lot. There was probably twice as many adults and a bunch of kids running around. Um, there's, is, is, there's a lot of people there. Um, and then it eventually started to happen. The moon started to come in front of the sun, right? And everybody was excited about that. We're all looking at, through, at it through our glasses and such. And um, then we realized, oh, it's going to take a long time for this to happen. <laughs> you know, so we had to wait about an hour. But eventually the, the, the sun became more and more and more of a sliver until finally... It was completely covered. And you do know what happened right at that moment? Everybody in that parking lot started shouting. In the middle of nowhere, Oregon, everyone in this parking lot started shouting. They started rejoicing. You could say they started celebrating. It just got really, really loud. Um, and then the sun came back out and it all stopped. Okay, and, and you couldn't help but be a part of it. And then it was over. And so it's like, oh, that was fun. But now it's over. It was like the loudest shortest party I've ever been a part of in my life, okay, with just right in the middle of Oregon there. Okay, but this celebration um, came because we had seen something, and that's exactly what's happening here in our psalm today. Our psalmist, he or she has seen something, seen something beautiful, and that is causing uh, him or her to celebrate causing him or her to celebrate, okay? So let's work through this psalm real quick so you can see the celebration. It's really up front. You're going to notice it right away, okay? Pick it up with me in verse 1. It says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So our psalmist starts with a cry, a petition to sing to the Lord the new song. Sing to the Lord a new song because he's seen something beautiful. He's seen something that's making him celebrate. And as a, a leader of the Israelite community, it's not enough for him to just be celebrating. He's saying, wait, everybody has to be celebrating along with me. And he invites them along. Okay, and then he, he switches who he's calling to celebrate here in verse 4. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. That is all the peoples who aren't Israel. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Make the joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And, and so the, our psalmist moves to asking the entire, all the people on the face of the earth to celebrate. 
And it's really, really forceful. In verse 4, I mean, it pops out at you in the Hebrew. In our, in our English translations, we can kind of see it's forceful just because they put an exclamation point there for us. But verse 4 literally says, um, make, or it says, rejoice to the Lord all the earth. And then it follows it up with three command verbs. Three command verbs. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Burst forth, be jubilant, make melody. He's just really calling all of the earth to join him in celebration. But then he's decided that that isn't even enough. In verse 7, he moves on. He says, let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. So all the, here's a picture he's called everybody on earth to celebrate. That's not enough. So he, he asks the earth to join in that celebration. He gives, the, he gives the rivers hands. He gives the, the, the hills voices to shout. This is a, a huge picture of, of a growing and growing and growing celebration. <clears throat> and this is an exciting picture, isn't it? This is a, a very exciting picture, that all this celebration going on. And that's just because, um, if it's exciting you, that's okay, because celebration is a human longing. All of us want to experience celebration throughout the course of our entire lives. Celebration is one of our core human longings. Um, just, just think about it. Um, we celebrate the, the major mile markers and events that go on in our lives. We celebrate when we graduate college. We, we celebrate uh, marriage. We celebrate the first home that we buy with what? A housewarming party, right? Um, and then here in Seattle, we, we love to celebrate the brands that are of Seattle. We, we love to celebrate Starbucks. We love to celebrate how great Amazon's doing and the cool things they're coming out with. We love to celebrate the Seattle Seahawks, right? Like, people love the Seattle Seahawks because it's celebration when they do well, right? That's how teams, when they do well, they, they garner a whole fan base of Fairweather fans. You can't blame the fans. They just have a desire to celebrate, and so they're going to get on that, you know? So we, we celebrate all of our, our fun brands here in Seattle. We even celebrate things that uh, we didn't work to bring about. We celebrate our birthdays, right? Celebrate New Year's every year. We celebrate the eclipse that, that happened. I even looked up, uh, there, there's this fad that's happening. Uh, it's not a fad, I guess. It's something new that's happening in the past couple of years, and that's like every individual item that we have um, has to be celebrated, and so we do things like National Ice Cream Day, National Coffee Day. I, I looked it up on Thursday, and it was uh, National Trail Mix Day. National Matchmaker Day, and National Eat Outside Day. So you could have grabbed like two of your single friends, gone on a hike with some trail mix, and be the ideal celebrator just on Thursday, okay? I mean, it's exhausting catching up with all these celebrating things, but we love to celebrate things, don't we? We love celebrating. It's part of our human longing. And, and this picture here, this huge celebration, it, it outstrips the Seattle boom, legend of boom, what do you guys call it? The, the Seattle Seahawks? Legion of Boom, I apologize. I apologize, I'm from Denver, so there's just a sore spot for me. Legion of Boom, um, there's Legion of Boom, but this far outstrips that. This is the entire world celebrating here in this psalm. And so this makes us curious, what's actually getting celebrated here, right? What's the celebration that we can get on board with? Don't all of us want to know? It's right here in verse one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Our psalmist has seen the marvelous things of God. He's seen the marvelous things that God has done. 
Okay, and so today we're going to unpack what those marvelous things are together. And so if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, um, this is a great opportunity for you because you may have been asked the question of like, why um, are the Christians that I know, why are they founded on this strange joy? Um, why, why, why is that? Why, why do they have this strange joy quality about them? Today we're going to pop the hood. We're going to answer that question. Um, but here's, here's, the, here's the secret I'll let you in on. Um, sometimes Christians aren't always joyful. Sometimes um, we can lose our joy, you could say. Christians can even lose their joy. And so this, this psalm actually gives us a question for us Christians too. And ask this question, when was the last time you would describe your walk uh, with God using the word celebration? When was the last time you can say, you know what, the only thing I can do right now is shout for joy. The only thing I can do right now is rejoice. We need to have a new song for this experience that I'm experiencing with God, just like the psalmist has experienced. When was the last time that's happened? And, and I fear um, that your answer uh, is just like mine was when I was, when I was going through this passage a couple weeks ago, and it was too long ago. Too long ago has there been celebration that hasn't been a part of my key life as a Christian. And, and perhaps you can remember a time in your Christian walk when celebration was, was just part and parcel of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. Maybe this was right, when, right after you became a Christian and, and uh, you were just learning the new marvelous things of God. They were just hitting you every day, every week, and there was just a celebration that undergirded your existence. Um, for me, there's a, a, a particular time of celebration when I was in college, when I was seeing the marvelous things of God in, in my life and in scripture, and, and I was doing that astrophysics, so I saw it in the heavens. There's just so much joy and celebration in my life. I was seeing the marvelous things of God. The good news is you can't white-knuckle celebration. You, you, you can't white-knuckle celebration. The, the minute that you say, oh man, I should be celebrating, this, or I should be celebrating my walk with Jesus, you've kind of, we've kind of lost the heart of celebration, haven't we? If we've said, I should celebrate, it's kind of like saying to your, your, uh, your significant other or best friend, like, we should celebrate your birthday, you know? You kind of lost the heart of it, lose the heart of it there. But celebration is just a symptom of something that's going on, and, that, and that's this. When, when we've stopped celebrating, it means that we've stopped reflecting upon the marvelous things of God. And so that's actually really good news because celebration, all that means is, is celebration is just a reflection away. It's just a single reflection away on the marvelous things of God to bring us into celebration, okay? And, and so, so that's what we're actually gonna be unpacking today. We're gonna unpack these marvelous things that our psalmist talks about. What are the marvelous things of God that are undergirding celebration, all right? So that's what we're going to do, um, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, all right? Are you ready for this? Cool. Okay, so what are the marvelous things of God? And the first one shows up right here in the second half of verse 1. He says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Um, God's holy arm and right hand have a rich, a rich meaning throughout the entire Old Testament. This is the language that denotes when God reaches into human history and by his power and his might, he works salvation for his people. That, that God's power and might has interceded into humanity's existence, into, into history, and brought salvation for his people. It, it, 
His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Um, the psalmist could probably has a, a handful of examples that he could go to in Hebrew history of God's holy arm coming into salvation and saving the Israelites. But the textbook one is the account of the Exodus, where God's holy hand, he saw his people in slavery and in genocide in Egypt, 13th century BC. And he inflicted 10 plagues upon the nation of Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let his people go to save his people. And then when Pharaoh sent his armies after the people, after he changed his mind, again, God parted the Red Sea. That was his, the, the strength and his power to release his people and save them in the Exodus account, all right? So, so that's, that's one of the things that our psalmist is celebrating, but that's not the only thing he's celebrating here, okay? This isn't the only thing that he's celebrating. This is actually, um, this celebration is actually founded upon something else. It's like, a, this is the beautiful uh, house that sits upon a foundation, okay? And he talks about the foundation in the next couple of verses. He says, I'll pick it up with verse two. The Lord has made known his salvation he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. This is, a, this is a, another Hebrew term that was commonly used throughout the Old Testament. And whenever it's used, it's meant to point back at the covenant that God made with his people the covenant that God had made with his people. This has its seed form in, in the covenant of Abraham in Genesis 12, 12, where God called Abraham and said, I will make your name great. I'll make you a great nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through your nation. This is the initial seed of the covenant. And that's why our psalmist actually is quick to go all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. These salvation experiences of the nation of Israel were, were very public. And a million people coming out of Egypt, that was very public. All the nations around them saw it. It, it. it was directly tied to God's covenant that he had made with the Israelites to bring them into a promised land. And part of this covenant was to witness to all the nations that, that Israel, after they get pulled out of Egypt, they... they they get given the law, and we can see the law is a suppressive thing, but, but really what the law is, is the law is God instructing Israel on how they can witness to his salvation best. God says, that here's the law, and if you follow this law, you can witness to my salvation of your people to all the surrounding nations, right? Uh, but they continually uh, forget it. Um, they, they continually run away from it. They continually rebel against it. And time and time again, we see God, uh, this rebellion happen. God turning them over to other nations again. Them crying out in their slavery and bondage again. And then God remembering his faith, his steadfast love and faithfulness. Remembering his covenant and saving them with his holy arm yet again. So this goes back and forth, back and forth. And, and, and so this psalmist, is, his celebration is rooted in this covenant and rooted in the salvation experiences that come from this covenant. But he's writing in the eighth century before Christ. And, and so we today, we have actually more covenant to look at, a, a, a richer, better, more lasting covenant to look at. You see, because that old covenant, we already talked about a little bit how it, it was ineffective. 
No matter how many times that that God saved his people with his holy arm back into his covenant by his steadfast love and his faithfulness, it was still just up to the gumption of the Israelites to hold it up. They were powerless to do so, just like you and I are powerless to to obey God completely throughout the course of our days, our, our, our weeks, our months, our years. And so, and so God sends his son, Jesus. Uh, Jesus comes not just because um, the Israelites um, are failing, but also because they're asking God for it. You see, throughout the, the prophets in the Old Testament, there's this cry, there's this desire that for a, a new and better covenant that, that can sustain them, that, that they can achieve, that can be effective, that can restore Israel's witness to the rest of the world. And God sends Christ. God sends Christ. And, and here's, here's what we have to understand about Jesus coming into the world. Jesus is the true Israel. Okay, so this is, this is a little bit complicated, so I'm just going to unpack it really quick for you. Um, but Jesus functions as the person to withhold Israel's side of the covenant, so to withhold the law. And so we actually see Jesus living his whole life in observant to the law, both in letter and in spirit. Jesus acts as the true Israel and Jesus acts as the true witness to God's salvation of Israel to the rest of the nations. In particular, his mission is, and we see this time and time again in the Gospels, is, is just to the Israelites. But he keeps coming into contact with people from outside of Israel that are saying, hey, I want that salvation too, because he's such a great witness to the salvation of God. Jesus is the true Israel. And, and over the course of his life, we see him and his perfect wit- witness acted out until the very end when Jesus ends up on the cross that the very people who are actually trying to uphold the covenant the most see him as threatening their, their kind of way that they practice the covenant. And so they conjure up a plan to kill him, and they put him on the cross. Okay, So here we have true Israel, the one that actually upheld the covenant better than anybody, crucified on the cross, absorbing the sins for people who couldn't uphold the covenant of God. Okay, so, so that's what this psalmist, well, that's not what this psalmist is, is celebrating. He didn't see that, right? We can see that. But our psalmist is celebrating the salvation. He, he's kind of looking back to these salvation events, and he's looking forward to how the, all the nations will, will come under the covenant of God. And as Christians, we look back to the salvation event of Christ, which is God saving him from the dead after he's been crucified. We look back to that salvation event, and then we look forward to when that covenant will be completely consummated overneath, over the entire world as well. That, that the, the hope of this salvation will touch the entire world. So celebration comes, it's rooted in re- reflecting upon the salvation of Christ, reflecting upon the cross, and it's rooted in looking forward to the future fulfillment of the covenant. So what does that mean? <laughs> like that, that's a long sentence, a lot of theological kind of language in there. What does that mean? Okay, so we're going to take both of those and we're going to unpack them today, okay? We're going to unpack both of those today. First, so celebration is rooted in looking back at the salvation of, of the covenant. Um, here's the deal. When, when Jesus was on the cross, uh, there is an element here um, that we call 
that we call substitutionary atonement. It's a terrible word. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said it. I, I started saying it. I was like, don't be dumb, Ryan. Okay. But on the cross, here's what happens. Jesus takes the sin of the people. He takes the sin of anybody who would be united to him. And he takes the judgment of it for them. Okay, he takes the judgment of it for them from God. He takes that judgment. And so really the, the cross is this huge scandalous event where the people that deserve judgment no longer get it because their sin, the reasons why they deserve judgment, is put on Jesus. Jesus' closest disciple, Peter, he actually talks about this in 1 Peter 2. And it's so important when we talk about reflecting on the cross. Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been freed. There in verse 24, Peter captures something really important that happened on the cross and that we often miss when we look at the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself bore our sins. So Jesus on the cross bore the sins of everybody who'd be united to him in faith. And so when we reflect upon the cross, this is what we need to see to celebrate. We need to see our sins on Jesus on the cross. Celebration comes when we see our sin on Jesus on the cross. This is actually something that, that, that we can really forget when we think of reflecting on the cross. What does it mean to reflect on the cross? It means to see Jesus on the cross bearing our sins, our sins on Jesus on the cross. And the more that you press into that, the more you, f you reflect upon that, the more joy you're going to find. This is the counterintuitive thing of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That the more you reflect on the depths and the darkness of your own sin on Jesus on the cross, the more you reflect upon that and go deeper and deeper and deeper into your own sin, the more grace and grace, the more grace you're going to find there. And when you do that, this grace, you not only find it intellectually, you experience it. You experience the grace of God for yourself in that moment, and that brings incredible joy. So the more sin you unpack, the more sin that you see on Jesus on the cross, the more grace you experience. The more grace you experience, the more joy you find. The more joy you find, the more celebration happens. This is just, this is just what happens. Try it. This is, this is true. This is true. Try it in your own life. It's, it's what's most counterintuitive about the gospel. And, and, and I hope that, that sin isn't just that thing that, that you consider in your life on the times that we talk about it here at church. Reflecting on our sin at the foot of the cross is one of the huge parts of our, the, the celebration of the Christian life. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. It, it works. It brings celebration. Okay? So that's the first thing. Okay, the, the second thing is the hope of the completion of the covenant. Uh, the hope of the completion of the covenant, which our author outlines here, and it's actually the same, which is the salvation of all of the people on the earth and then even the earth itself. Okay? That's the second piece. Uh, the hope of the completion of the covenant. 
Um, we have to understand what hope means to, to unpack that phrase. Um, and, and hope is knowledge of a future reality that gives us energy today. Knowledge of a future reality that gives us energy today. It's not just like wishful thinking. It actually does something in the present for us. Um, hope is the difference between wrapping up work on Friday with no plans for the weekend and wrapping up work on Friday, one o'clock, and knowing that you have a hot date that night. Those are two very different experiences at work, am I right? Anybody experience this? One, you have a lot more energy to wrap up work and get out of there. The other isn't informing much. Um, what's another example? Uh, any teachers in here? Any teachers? Demi. Dave. Um, hope is the difference uh, in your students uh, halfway through the semester and versus the last week before summer break. Students have a lot more energy that last week before summer break. They're bouncing off the walls. At least that's what it was like when I was in school. We were nuts to our teachers that last week before summer break because we had the hope of summer break is here. That was giving us energy today. It wasn't helpful energy at all, right, Timmy? That's, that's not helpful energy at all. But still, that, 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 that's what happens. That's what, that's what hope does, okay? Um, and our psalmist is talking about a future event as well. Um, perhaps you noticed that I skipped over one of these verses uh, when, when we read through it earlier. Um, but our, our psalmist ha- has, this, has this flow to his psalm. He's celebrated. He's asking Israel to celebrate. He's asking the whole world to celebrate. He's asking the earth itself to celebrate. We have this, this, this celebration the arc going here. And then it crescendos in verse 9. Read it with me. Do all the celebration. Where does it happen? Before the Lord. Why? For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. Judgment? Now this seems out of place, doesn't it? This seems really out of place. If you're not a Christian, maybe this is one of the reasons why, that that us Christians, we love to talk about about joy and hope and new life and celebration, and then at the end, we kind of sneak in judgment, sin, repentance. This seems really out of our, why is our psalmist being such a buzzkill here? We were having this great celebration party, and now he's talking about judgment. But before you walk out, I want to tell you something. We've actually been talking about judgment the entire time. We've actually been talking about judgment this entire time. And that's because salvation and judgment can't be divorced from each other. Whenever there's salvation, there's judgment. And, and, And this is something that I think actually Seattleites get really, really well. Um, if, you were to go, if you were to go out on the street right now, and you would encounter um, a Seattleite, and uh, you would ask them uh, this question, what, what do you think the biggest problem our nation is facing right now? They would probably say something along the lines of racism or discrimination, right? This is, this is how they would re- respond, and, and, which is probably true. And, and then if you were to ask them, um, well, what are the next steps to fixing it? One of those steps would definitely be impeach Donald Trump. That would definitely be one of the next steps, okay? Now, what, what, like that, that's a debate that we're not having here. I'm just saying that 
I mean, the media outlets debate that constantly and they make millions, okay? We're not having that debate now. That's just to show that we understand intrinsically that for someone or group of people to experience salvation, the person that is over that group oppressing them needs to be thrown out. They need to be overthrown. Um, you can think of it like this even. When we looked at the, the, the Exodus event earlier, um, you can, you can read that event as God's salvation for the Israelites, and it is God's salvation for the Israelites. Or you can read that event as judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians for committing a mini Holocaust in 13th century BC in genocide and slavery of the Jewish people. And, and I'll have you know that minority groups that, that, that read the Bible that are, that are Christians tend to read this account that way. So, so salvation and judgment always go hand in hand. And our psalmist wants to make sure we understand something about God's judgment, though. He says he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Judge the world with righteousness and peoples with equity. Um, the Hebrew notions in righteousness and equity um, are the manner in which a decision is implemented. The, the way in which a, a decision or the method in which a decision is implemented. Our psalmist says, when, when we see that future judgment of God, which is coming, he's coming to judge the earth. When, when that comes, we're going to see at it, or we're, we're, we're going to look at it. It may be hard to look at, but at the end of the day, we're going to say, you know what, that, that was righteous. That's exactly what needed to be done. That, that judgment was executed justly. That, that, that was really even-handed. That's what our psalmist wants us to understand about the coming judgment of God, that it's going to be even-handed, that we're going to see it, and we're going to say that was appropriate. That's what's going to happen. And, and so that's, that's the judgment of God, but we have to be careful. Our psalmist isn't celebrating the judgment of God. He's celebrating what happens when salvation and judgment come together. Where salvation and judgment come together, something's produced, and that's justice. Salvation and judgment bring about justice. Justice, not judgment. And so our psalmist is celebrating because he sees a time, a future, where justice covers the earth. Isn't this what we all want? A future where there's, there's, there's no oppression, where there's just justice done everywhere and anywhere all the time, that no one's trying to cut a little bit extra off the top for their own gain. Justice. This is a picture of justice, and this is what the Christian gospel promises. All right? And this is what the Christian gospel hopes for. This is the future reality of justice that's coming. Well, how can we know? That's, that's, that's the next question. How can we know that that's actually coming? Because I can't hope in that unless I actually know it's going to come. And, and the reason why we know is because we see all of this injustice as, as initiated and started and pushed forward by Satan himself. And it, it, it culminates in death. But Jesus, after being crucified on the cross, buried in the tomb for three days, God raises him from the dead as an initial an initial and most extreme way of showing that justice will again be done, that death has no victory here on earth anymore. There's no more sting in death. The resurrection of Christ is our first fruits of the future justice that's going to be done over the entire earth.
So if, if you're not a, a Christian um, and you're kind of trying to consider Christianity, resurrection is a great place to start. Did that happen? Did that happen? That's a fair question. Investigate that question. We here at Sedaris love to consider that question. We'd love to help you with that as well, okay? All right. Okay, and then something else. We have to also understand something about Satan and his kingdom of sin that he's kind of worked over this planet. Um, and that's this, that he's actually not that powerful. That, that Satan, like a good biblical understanding of, of Satan is that he's actually not that powerful and he's severely limited in what he can accomplish here on the face of the earth. He, and so that's why when you see Satan approach Eve in the garden, he actually doesn't harm her. He actually just convinces her to rebel against God. So Satan convinces humanity to rebel against God so that we will be on the opposite side of that judgment. Satan, is, his goal is to use God's, God's tool of judgment for himself, for his own purposes, to obliterate the human race. But here's what happened on the cross. On, on the cross. Satan himself and that scheme is outed as a ruse and it actually is completely falls flat. Um, that's the cool thing about the cross. There's lots of things that happened on the cross, and there's so many things that happened on the cross that the entire New, New Testament was written to kind of unpack a lot of them. And, and one of the apostles, Paul, he does for that for us in Colossians 2. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, that's sin. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and, authority and, put the, and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And, and many translations will say, by triumphing over them in the cross. So this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. On the cross, we have Jesus actually taking that record of debt that Satan worked so hard to count against the people of God. That it's no longer there. It's no longer on me. And if you're united to Jesus in faith, it's no longer on you. And so Satan is deemed powerless in that way. His plan is foiled. He can't bring it to completion anymore. And so what is his goal now? And I want to posit that it's to kill our celebration. Satan's goal is to kill our celebration. Why? Because celebration is crucial to evangelism. It's absolutely crucial to evangelism. Without celebration, uh, Christianity becomes just a, 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 a mere list of intellectual propositions that, that we can try to walk people through. I mean, one of the joys of getting to know a lot of people here at Sedaris is that a lot of people have actually come to Christianity later in life. And, and you know what their stories are? Their stories go like this. You know what? I, I found someone who there was just something about them in the way they talked about Jesus. They were clearly, clearly excited about Jesus. And so Satan tries to kill our excitement about Jesus. You know, when, when, when people tell me that evangelism is hard for them because they get confused and, and, and they get, uh, it's hard for them to intellectually have the conversations, I, I do like to give a, a lot of credit to that. But at the same time, you know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to find out if they're celebrating themselves. Are you 
celebrating. Because when you celebrate something, that's when that thing becomes attractive. I recently got a new toothbrush. I recently got this new toothbrush. It's amazing. It's called the Quip. It's a little, small, electric toothbrush. It's like the same size as a regular toothbrush, except it looks really sleek and nice. It's like a really beautiful toothbrush, right? And, and it cleans my teeth beautifully. I've never had an electric toothbrush before. And it just like vibrates every 30 seconds, let me know to go to a different quarter, quarter of my mouth, you know? And so I'm getting great just coverage over all of my teeth. And I've been telling like all my friends about this that I possibly can. And, and they've been able to buy a couple because of my celebration of this amazing toothbrush. It's called Quip. You should look it up. You will thank me later. I've turned into this toothbrush evangelist. What if we celebrated Christianity like that toothbrush? What if we celebrated Christianity? What if there is a fire within us of celebration? Because here's the reality. For many of the people that you come into contact in a city like Seattle, many people that you work with, many of your friends perhaps even in the city, you're the only Christian in their life that's a true gospel-believing Christian. That's a reality for many of you. And what, what kind of Christianity are they coming into contact with? Are they coming into contact with the fire of celebration or not? What's your witness to your friends like? This is what Psalm 98 is all about. It's about creating a celebration that's attractive to the nations, about fostering a celebration in us by looking back at the salvation event of Christ and looking forward at the hope of the full consummation of the justice of God, creating a celebration within us that's contagious to the people we come into contact with, that we just can't help but let them know. And so if evangelism is is lacking in your life, talking to people about Jesus is is dragging in your life, I'd ask you, are, are you celebrating? Psalm 98 is an invitation to celebrate. All right. Well, we, we, we close these sermons down and we usually do it with a prayer, but I think it's, it'd be great if we could just read our psalm. Uh, I could read the psalm. You guys can uh, close your eyes and bow your heads and I'll read this song as a, the psalm as a prayer for us. Um, band, you guys can come up. Yeah. I'll, I'll read this, uh, this psalm as a prayer for us. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. You have made known your salvation. You have revealed your righteousness in the sight of the nations. You have remembered your steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth, be jubilant, make melody. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For you come to judge the earth and you will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Um, our first song that our band's going to lead us in um, is, is called Hosanna. And um, Hosanna was, uh, it's, it, it comes from the Hebrew. It, it, it literally means uh, save us. It's, it's, it's a cry out to God for salvation to the Hebrews. 
um, historically. Save us, save us. Like what you would do if you jumped off a diving board into the water and you couldn't swim. Save me, save me. Um, but here's the thing about language. It, it actually changes over time. Um, take, for example, the word lit. You know, uh, the word lit, if you say something is lit, um, well, it means something different than it did a couple years ago, right? Um, language changes over the course of time. And, and by the time that Jesus showed up on the scene, Hosanna drastically changed. It changed from the thing that you cry when you jump in the pool and you can't swim to the thing that you cry when you jump in the pool and you can't swim and you see that the, the lifeguards jumped in to come and get you. It, it, it literally really meant when, when uh, Christ showed up on the scene, salvation, salvation is here. Salvation is coming. Salvation is coming. And uh, they, the people of Jerusalem cried this as, as Jesus entered Jerusalem for his last, last supper, for his last, last supper. Um, and so they cried that in the day, and at night he had the last supper. And, and we do this every year, every um. Every week here at Sedaris, we, we, we practice the Lord's Supper. And, and that's a time where we get to come to the table of, uh, of, of Christ, the, the Last Supper. And we get to see um, how our sin has been dealt with in Christ. We get to see our, our sins on Jesus on the cross. And we get to experience the celebration of that. We do that every week here at Sedaris. So on, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, uh, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, the new covenant. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until you come.